0: Today, we're continuing our sermon series on wisdom, and we've talked a lot about some of the big picture items of wisdom and God's plan, and we've talked about some specific areas of wisdom, like money. Uh, last week, Pastor Alt spoke on wisdom in suffering, and today I want to talk about wisdom and the church, and by that, I don't mean necessarily that the wisdom of the church in the sense of you need to listen to us because we're incredibly wise because we're the church. Uh, and by this I'd, I don't mean that you need to listen to me because as a leader in the church, I'm incredibly wise or the elders of the church are, are incredibly wise. That's not what we're talking about. It may actually be true, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> i kidding. I'm kidding. What I want to talk about is God's wisdom in his plan for the church. And my goal for each and every one of us today is to leave this place hearing these words from scripture, seeing this idea with a greater appreciation for the church and a better understanding of God's beating heart for this thing we call the church. When I was in high school, my favorite subject was physics. I loved physics. How many of you love physics? A couple of you. Okay. How many of you hate physics? It's it's okay. You own it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. First service, there were a couple uh, high schoolers and they kind of rolled their eyes at physics. I had a wonderful physics teacher. Great, great guy. He happened to be a great Christian guy, but he was just a wonderful teacher. And his passion in teaching us physics was to help us understand how these kind of ethereal, out-there sort of mathematical concepts apply to the real world. He was always interested in showing us how things applied to the real world. Now, I was t- taking math and pre-calculus and algebra and all these things, and, and I, I liked it, but it was always sort of out there, and and I just... I would study it as a subject to get through, but I didn't really understand how it applied. And then I would sit in physics class and he would use some very tangible, obvious demonstration to show us these deep mathematical principles. I remember he had a dart gun hooked up and a monkey on the other side. Have you ever seen, not a real monkey, don't worry. It was a stealth monkey. And and he had a timer on it where the dart gun would fire and the monkey would drop. And he said, will the gun hit the monkey? How many of you say yes? How many of you say no, it'll miss? Oh, and some of you are just too chicken to answer. Okay. It it does, because the gravity on the dart is the same as the gravity on the monkey, and they will fall and hit each other. No matter how fast or slow that dart gun fires, it will hit the monkey, unless the monkey hits the ground first. So, see, practical, real life. How many times I've tried to hit a monkey with a dart gun, and I needed that illustration. (laughs) <laughs> okay maybe not that practical I remember another time and I was telling my kids about this uh, this past week he took a, uh, a vacuum pump and he had a I don't know what you call it like a bell jar one of these big glass things and he put a cup of water in this, on this platform and then put the jar over it and sucked out all the atmosphere all the pressure all the air and do you know what happens to water when you take away all the pressure around it it boils boils, it, like, just like on your stove. It just bubbles over and boils all over. So then he shut off the vacuum pump, removed it from the jar, and he held up the cup and he said, who is willing to drink this? And I well, I will. He <laughs> said, sure, I'll drink it. So I took the cup and I chugged it down. It was cold because water that was boiled through pressure is cold. And it was so neat because he used this to talk about the various ways to boil water and how the math and the science and all of it works together. And it was so fascinating. Now, I don't want you to leave today with a greater appreciation of physics, okay? That's not my goal. Yeah, some of you are like, "Good, cuz that's not happening." <laughs> but the reason I loved physics is that it took these obscure, difficult to understand principles and it made them real. There's a word in theology that we have called incarnation. It's a word that as we get closer and closer to Christmas becomes more and more important because we are about to celebrate in Christmas the incarnation of the Son of God. Do you know what that word means? It means to put on flesh. That's literally what it means. God knew that we needed to know him. And he sent all these messengers and messages But at the end of the day, what we needed was something obvious that we could see and experience and listen to. And that's what Jesus was. He was much more than that. He's also our Savior who died on uh, on the cross in our place and rose from the grave. But he's also this incarnation and he would touch people and they would hear him speak. They would see him break bread. They saw the truth of God in action. But show of hands, how many of you were there? I wasn't there. I didn't see the baby in the manger. I I wasn't there at the feeding of the 5,000. I wasn't there when he was on the cross or when he ascended. I wasn't there. So while it's wonderful to read about the incarnation, it's still in some ways something kind of out there and separated from us. The world still needs something to see, to see the gospel, this truth of God in action. And God had a plan for that. He's always had a plan for that. That's what the church is about today. You and I become an incarnation, not like Christ, not the same way. We're not God in the flesh, okay? But we're a living, breathing demonstration, imperfect, messy, but a living, breathing demonstration of the work of God in this world. Now, as I look at this world, I see a lot of brokenness. As I look at the aftermath of our election process, uh, I see a lot of brokenness. And I have to say that I don't think what we're seeing is so much a product of this election as much as this election is simply kind of dipping a thermometer into our culture and showing us its temperature. These things were always there. They've been simmering under the surface and growing and building. And in many ways, we're seeing the soul of our country. And it's ugly. i got to be honest with you. There's a lot of difficulty going on. And I think we need to understand why and then understand how God has this plan to meet those things and to answer the questions and to challenge the misconceptions. There are three effects of sin that I want to look at as we think about the church. And in many ways, the last two are really related to or come from the first one. Three effects of sin that we see, especially in Genesis chapter three, but there's this broken relationship with God. I was listening to the radio this past week and on uh, public radio, and they were talking about the problems in our culture, and, and racism, and all these riot, riots, and the difficulties, and they were talking about what is it, and, and they said, you know, people just need to change their views, they need to change their hearts, and, and the, the announcer was listening to a caller who was talking about these things, and the announcer was sort of going, yeah, but how can you really do that? The The... the person was struggling to answer these things, and I'm in the car thinking, it's the gospel. Only the gospel can change a heart. We can change all the laws, we can change all the rules, we can change who's in the White House, we can change all of our politicians, and we will not have the slightest impact on a person's soul, and the problems won't go away. Our country needs a new heart. There's a broken relationship with God between the individuals of our country and the person of God. And that's the greatest need. The other two broken things in our world come out of that. We have a broken relationship with truth. When Adam and Eve sinned, they they kind of claimed for themselves this right to say what was right and wrong. They said, we'll take it from here, God. We know you made everything. We think you know how it works, but we're going to say what's right and wrong. We want to do that on our own. And ever since that moment, humanity and history is a testimony to the fact that we are really bad at determining right and wrong. We're messed up. There's a brokenness there. We don't know truth. In fact, our ability to even comprehend truth, if it was presented to us, is broken. There's a broken relationship with God. There's a broken relationship with truth. And finally, there's a broken relationship with each other. You see it right away in Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the world, they start pointing fingers at each other. This perfect relationship between Adam and Eve is ripped apart. And they start blaming each other. And as I see the tension in our culture, I see broken relationships all around us. Some of you are experiencing those in very personal ways. There's a brokenness to the relationships in this world. And so with these three things in mind, I want to look at the church and God's plan for the church. And the first thing we need to answer is this question, what is the church? Because I think one of the biggest problems, maybe not one of the biggest problems, but a big problem in Contemporary Christianity is a misconception of the church. We have redefined the church to be a place, a building, a place that we gather, an address on the street, a system of programs that we offer up and, and we say, this is our church. Scripture has no concept of a church being a place. Scripture always, always, always refers to a church as a group of people. Always. The very word "ecclesia" for church means a gathering of people. It doesn't matter where they're gathered. If this building were to fall down, I don't want to say today because we're still in it, tomorrow or this afternoon, and and we had to gather somewhere else, it would still be the church. There's nothing sacred about this place. Some of you maybe were brought up with a tradition of, you know, you don't run in the sanctuary because that's where God lives. God doesn't live here any more than he lives anywhere else. The church is not the church building see I even did it the church building is not the dwelling place of God you know want to know where God dwells specifically in the world today it's in the church you and me and wherever we are that becomes the dwelling place of God and when we gather together God is glorified the church is always the people and the New Testament, the, especially the the books that Paul writes, these letters to the churches they 're always written to groups of people and so, as we read the New Testament, we need to recover an understanding that it 's about living this Christian life together it 's not just me and god it 's not just you and God. Church is not just something that we gather together to do because it 's helpful in our private relationship with Christ. That's a very American way of looking at things. We're so individualistic. Scripture talks about being gathered together. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's use scripture to answer this question, what is the church? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. This is one of Paul's addresses uh, and by that, I mean at the beginning of his letter, he would say who wrote it and who it's written to. But it's filled with some good meaning about what the church or who the church really is. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You see who the church is there? Those who are sanctified. That means to be set apart as holy and being made holy. So it starts with salvation, being saved by Christ, and then being renewed, remade from the inside out. That's what the church is. We're called to be holy. We are to live different. There's a trend in churches today to try to be more like the culture, to win the culture. It's a bad idea. Now there's an appropriate place to change what we do because it no longer carries the meaning to the culture of of the truth of the gospel. It's not a good translation. There's a place for that. There's a place for changing musical styles and, and, and maybe the decor of a building, maybe windows, things like that. There's a place for that. But you don't change the fundamental truth of God to be more acceptable to the community or to the culture. We are called to be different. We are called to be holy we are called together. We are called to gather and to understand our identity in Christ is together as the church. And it's not just us here in these pews at Orchard. It's, it's us together with all the Christians of Rochester. It's us together with all the Christians of the United States. It's us together with all the Christians of the world throughout history. We're called together. The church is so much bigger than just the individuals right here. And the church is all who call on the name of the Lord. The church is defined by those who are saved. If you're here today and you're, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I'm so glad you're here. We say this every time we do communion. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad that you can participate and learn and listen. I'm glad that you can go to Sunday school and get involved in small groups. I am so glad that you can do this. But listen what Scripture says. Coming into the address where the church meets does not make you the church. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you're not a part of the church. You're welcome to gather with us. I hope you can learn together with us. I hope one day you will fall on your knees before before the all-holy God and repent and cry out to Jesus for salvation. And then, even if you've been here for 50 years, at that moment you become a part of the church. And it's a beautiful thing. But the church is those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. It's not a building. It's not programs. It's an identity in Christ and then sent on a mission for Christ. And what is that mission? And here's where we get into the wisdom of God in planning this thing we call the church. To meet the needs that we have in our world Today. So let's look at how the church displays a restored relationship with God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read for you verses 3 through 10. We're not going to look at these verses in depth, but I want you to get the big Picture As I read these verses or as you follow along, look for the beating heart of God for the church. Look for how much he has loved the church and blessed the church and the ways in which he has blessed us. Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him. Look at some of the main points here. Verse 4 says that God chose us. God chose the church. He looked down through all of history and he said, I'm going to put a plan in place to save people through my son, Jesus. He had that plan before you were ever born, before anybody was ever born, before there was a mountain or a sun or a star or a speck of dust. God had a plan for us, the church. Part of that plan was adopting us as His children to restore that right relationship with Him, to save us from our sins. Verse 7, verse 8 talks about lavishing upon us the grace in Christ Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 say part of that grace is to reveal His plan to us, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, Let me ask you this. Again, we can go into a lot of specifics here, but here's the question I want to answer through this passage. Does God have a plan for the church? Does God have a purpose? As you've listened to or followed along and read those verses, can you answer that question? Does God have a plan for the church? And if you've read that with any sense of openness, the answer has to be, Yes! It says before the foundation of the world, before creation, God set in motion a plan for the church. An essential part of that plan is to demonstrate this restored relationship between us and Him. Now think about this for a second. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are changing that plan. They're sitting around saying, how can we do this better? We're looking at our culture and the changes of our culture and we're saying we need to change some of the foundational truths and the doctrines and and what the church is. We need to change it to be more acceptable. And so many people are applauding and saying, this is wonderful. It's so loving to the culture. Do you think for a moment before the foundation of the earth that God was in any way unaware of what would be going on in our church or in our world today? Of course not. He saw it all from beginning to end. And so in his infinite wisdom, he laid out a plan for us to be here today based on his holy word. And here we are in our speck of history with our tiny little perspective on the world and our minuscule understanding of how things work compared to God. And we're basically saying, God, we can do it better. The world doesn't need our plans. The world doesn't ultimately need our effectiveness as a church. The world needs Jesus Christ. And that was God's plan from the beginning. To bring you and I together in this place, at this time, in this culture, to be a living, breathing demonstration of the gospel. And the world so desperately needs the church to be The church. Look at God's passion for the church. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you catch why God sent Christ? Did did you see that there? This whole thing about him bringing his son to the earth and living a perfect sinless life and then going to the cross and then dying in our place and rising from the grave, this passage right here sums it up neatly and says the reason God did this, his passion behind all of it is for the church. Have you ever heard somebody say, I love Jesus, but I I don't need to go to church. I can do it on my own. And maybe you've been tempted to think that. Maybe some of you are here and you're kind of checking out church because you've been gone for a while. Come back. If not here, somewhere else. I, I really don't care. This is not about us. The church is bigger than us. But listen, some of you are going to go off to college in a couple years. Some of you maybe will get married and move away. Some of you maybe at some point you're just going to go, you know what, Orchard's just, it's not my church home and I, want, I need to go somewhere else. And that's fine. But listen, listen, God has a passion for His church. We need to have that passion too. It is inexcusable for people shaped by Scripture to say that they love God, but they don't love the church. Because the church is the reason that Jesus Christ went to the cross. To fail to understand the importance of the church is to basically say that Jesus messed up and He was wrong. Now look, listen very carefully. We're messy. We get things wrong all the time. The church is not perfect, okay? I I don't agree with our Catholic brothers and sisters that I get to speak with the words of God. I don't get to do that. I'm a sinner just like you, and frankly, I don't think anybody else does either. I don't care how many robes he wears. We're imperfect people. But we serve a perfect God and he has a perfect plan in this messy world to gather us together to be a demonstration of the gospel. And he's given us a mission to go and make disciples, to point others to Jesus Christ. The church displays to the world that salvation is possible, that Christ is real, that God is at work, that we can be restored to right relationship with God through Christ. I don't know about you, but as I look at this world, they desperately need to see that. And I'm excited. Because God has already put a plan in place to give the world exactly what it needs. You. And me. That's scary, isn't it? We are a demonstration of the gospel in this world. To meet the greatest need, this restoration and relationship between them and God we talked about this damage this messy or messed up relationship to truth god has put something in place as well to help people understand that it's called the church turn to romans chapter 1 this actually came up in the sunday school class romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 23 In Romans 1, verses 18 through about 32 or so, there's sort of this progression of sin in the world. So we're jumping into the middle of it, but I just want to read a part, starting in verse 21 and going through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. What this passage is saying is that our sin has so infected us that we will never in and of ourselves correctly perceive truth. Never. That's hard for us as modern people, as people of the enlightenment, as people of reason. We want to say, well, we can understand truth. We can have a scientific method that can lead us to truth. We can sit around and discuss and have an understanding of truth. And the Bible says, no, it will always be messed up in some way, shape or form. And so anytime we are relying on what makes sense to us or the way we've always done it or what seems right in our own eyes, we need to have this flashing red light and this flag that goes up in our mind saying, danger, danger. We are sinners. And our concept of truth is undermined by our sin. And we are constantly trying to fill that void in our life for truth by setting up things to say, this is our truth. This is our new truth. That's what idolatry is all about. Trying to meet that need in our own lives for truth. And it will never, never succeed. The foundation of the church is the truth revealed by God through Scripture. There's a pattern in Paul's writings, especially in what I would call his sort of general letters. Letters that were written to churches, not necessarily to address a specific problem, but just to give a general overview of Scripture. Turn to Romans. Well, you're still there, hopefully. Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 16 and 17, because this lays out kind of the core truth that Romans is about. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul takes the first 11 chapters of Romans to lay out for us this fundamental truth and all of its implications. So to come as Christians and to say, I just want to live a good moral life. I just want to be a good person. I don't don't have time to spend time in Scripture. I don't have time for sermons or Bible studies. I, I just want to be a good person is to miss the point. Scripture is filled with the important point. Truth has to come before action. Always. Truth has to come before obedience. Always. Truth has to come before goodness, because our understanding of goodness is messed up. And so Paul takes those 11 chapters to answer some fundamental questions, and then, and only then, in chapter 12, does he transition and say, okay, now this is how you're to live, because of this truth. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians, talks about the blessings we have in Christ in chapter 1, and then he gets to verse 4, or chapter 4, and then he says, now because all this is true, this is how we are to live. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a passage I would challenge all of you to memorize. All scripture is God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is God-breathed. That means it is inspired by God. It is not man-made. We didn't make this stuff up. It is not fiction. This is the very word of God given to us. Truth. And it is useful. I know so often we come to Scripture and we say, I just don't understand how it applies to my life. I just don't get it, how it meets the need that's going on right now. And I get it. I've been there with you. I, I know. But in faith, we need to come back to this and say, But God says it is useful and if it is inspired divinely by Him, I will trust and I will keep on reading and pouring this into my soul. We need truth. The church is a proclaimer of truth. Look at Matthew 28. Back to the Great Commission. As we look at our mission in this world, It is not just to do good things. It is not just to meet needs. That's not enough. We must be proclaimers of God's truth. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Do you know what a disciple is? It's a learner slash follower. Together. A follower that learns and a learner that follows. Do you know how you become a learner and a follower? You're taught something. You're you're presented with truth. You, You have to have truth proclaimed to you in order to be a disciple. We must proclaim. And he goes on, in case it wasn't clear, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, baptism is an enactment of the truth of the gospel. Verse 20, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How do you teach someone to obey Christ? You proclaim truth. We must proclaim truth. In our sermons and Bible studies and our our witnessing and our discussions with each other and our fellowships around dinner tables, we must be truth proclaimers. It's why I pray that if anyone is offended by us as a church, it is because of our reliance upon the word of God. It's why as a leader and together with the elders and with Pastor Al and Sunday school teachers and children's leaders and everything, we're constantly saying, is what we're doing based on the word of God? Because if it's not, we need to get rid of it. We need to be truth proclaimers, but we also need to be truth displayers. Twice in Ephesians, the church is called the body of Christ. Once in Ephesians 1.23 and another in Ephesians 4.15 and 16. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? We have this concept of we are the hands and feet of Christ. And that's good. It's it's biblical. We are the the work of Christ in this world. We need to meet needs. We need to feed the poor and, and help the homeless. We need to do those things as the hands and feet of Christ. But the body of Christ, frankly, is bigger than that. We are displayers of the gospel. The world today will not see the baby in the manger. They won't see the Savior on the cross. They won't see the empty tomb. But they will see you. And they will see me. And they will see our lives. Will our lives display the truth of the gospel? I see people try to interact with the culture. Well-meaning, godly people. And, and they, they want to proclaim truth. And so they're interacting with the gospel and, and challenging things in the, the culture and arguing about things on Facebook or getting into debates and, and they're sticking up for Jesus Christ. But there's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no love. There's no humility. So in one sense, you have a proclamation of the truth, but in the other sense, you have zero display of the truth. And Christ is not glorified. We need to both proclaim and display together. It's not enough to merely know or proclaim the truth. We must also display it. And I hope and pray that you see that here at Orchard, that that is important to us. But see, truth is a funny thing. We all want to nod our heads when we agree with the truth. But the moment the truth confronts us with something we don't want to change, that's the moment we want to reject it and change it. And that option as truth proclaimers and truth displayers is not open to us. And that means there will be times when we come to God's word, we will be, should be properly offended and challenged. So that rather than molding God's word to our world or our lives, we mold our lives to God's word. Finally, the church displays relationships, restored relationships with each other. Paul was a great theologian. He had a lot to say about proper doctrine, proper belief, God's eternal plan from from the Old Testament into the New. He writes at length about theology and its good So deep. I love the way he writes. But he never stops there. You see, after chapters 1 through 11 in Romans, where he's gone on and on and on about the theological truth of the gospel and its impact on the world and its impact on Gentiles and Jews, and he gets to chapter 12, and then he says, now this is how you are to live. He spends much of chapters 12 through 16 talking about how we as Christians, are to love each other. Because the gospel doesn't just restore us to God, it restores us to each other. And as I turn on the news, the world is really bad at restoring relationships. It seems like everything that we've tried to do in the past 50 years to overcome some of the relational issues in our country are now backfiring on us. And this should not surprise us because the only thing that can truly restore relationships is Jesus Christ. The world needs Jesus. Paul does this again in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1-3, through he talks about the depth of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Then he gets to chapter 4 and he spends the first 16 verses of his application saying, this is how you are to live, talking about unity in the church. He does it again in Colossians. Turn to John chapter 13. Let's look at one specific place where this comes up. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 34. Jesus is about to go to the cross. Judas is just left to betray him, and he's speaking with his disciples, and he says this, When he was gone, that was Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. See, there's a lot of truth there in those two verses. Okay, But then look what he says in verse 34. Excuse me, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The truth about Jesus Christ must always be displayed in the love that Christians have for each other in the church. Always. Always. To have truth, but to not love the brothers and sisters in Christ is to either not understand the truth or not actually believe the truth, no matter how strong you are in your explanation of it. Now, we need to be careful here. There's a danger. We can seek to be loving, and it's very easy to be loving by getting rid of truth. That's super easy. We just accept everybody and you think this and you think this and we can all think that and that's fine and we'll all be loving and happy and that's wonderful. The Bible doesn't leave that open. It must be love based on truth. That's much, much more difficult. But this world needs restored relationships. And as the church, we need to live this out. We need to work hard at this. And and I'm not saying this to beat us up at Orchard. I'm not saying this because I see problems in our church. Quite the contrary, I love this church. I think it's so wonderful to be able to walk hand in hand with Christ together. We're messy, we're imperfect, but we own up to that. But there's an effort that I see on the part of the leaders and on a part of the members to say, let's walk together and love one another. So what do we do with this? We need to understand the church as a gathering of people saved by Christ. We don't get to come up with the purpose for the church. We don't come up with our own little strategy. We need to follow what God says. We need to understand that we are to display the restoration of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the fundamental need of every single person. There's a lot of other things we can do as a church, but if we don't get that right, nothing else will matter. We need to display the restoration of the foundation of truth by pouring over Scripture, digging into God's Word. And we need to display the restoration of relationships with each other. We need to love one another based upon truth. Throughout history, the world has gone through many different phases and struggles and unique, difficult moments. And for each one of them, God has had an answer. As he looked through the course of history and he saw World War I and World War II and the Vietnam conflict and, and the 80s and their awful music and the 90s and grunge and all these things. And then he saw us today and he saw this bitter political rivalry in a country that's being torn in two and racism that's going on. And he saw all these different, very unique situations. He said, I've got an answer for that. And number one was Jesus Christ. Number two was the church. The church is always what the world needs. But the church doesn't always focus on what the world needs. I pray that as a church, we will focus on who God is and what He has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have a world in need. And God, that is always true. There are times in our culture and in our history that we see it more clearly. We see the desperation. We see the conflict bubbling up to the surface. And God, we may want to scramble for new ideas and new answers and novel things to practice. But the answer is older than creation. It is your plan to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and raise from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe, and then to gather around that truth, a body of people saved by Christ, to live out that truth in this world. God, what amazing wisdom. And Father, as we look at our own lives and how messed up and frail we are and how often we fail, it, it might be tempted, we might be tempted to question that wisdom. But God, you do amazing things through broken people. And this broken world, I think, needs to see these broken people being made new in Jesus Christ. And so I pray for the church in the United States. I pray for the church in Rochester. I I pray for this church, this local gathering. May we point people to Christ, that they might be restored to a relationship with you. May we stand firm in the truth, that people would see the truth in action and hear it proclaimed. And God, may we love one another with a gospel-centered, gospel-driven love, that they might see what true relationships look like.